He said, everybody thinks Russia, 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 China, Russia, North Korea, Russia, Iran, Russia. So there are 30, three zero countries hacking into the United States. Wow. Said, Whoa, 30 countries? Wow. I said, give me an yeah. example. What's country number 30? And he said, would you believe Bangladesh? Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast was a disturbing one. We talked with Adam Clayton Powell III about the University of Southern California's Election Security Project. Adam is the executive director of this project, going around the country, holding workshops on how to build cybersecurity into America's elections. What shocked me during our conversation was how interference in American elections has gone mainstream. You may have seen the report from the intelligence community showing how Russia, China, and Iran are trying to influence this November's election. But he says that's not even the start. Over 30 countries are interfering in our election. The perceived success of Russia's efforts in 2016, combined with the low cost of cyber attacks, has brought the world to the U.S. Unfortunately, the hacking of our election has taken on a political tinge. But this conversation should show you how these attacks are on our democracy, not on any one party. Fortunately, the ways to protect our election are mostly also relatively cheap and easy. Change your passwords, be aware of disinformation on the internet, and good media hygiene. If you're interested in learning more, go to electionsecurity.usc.edu, and I hope you enjoy the show. Adam Clayton Powell III, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Adam, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about election security. It's, it's top of people's mind as we're coming up on presidential election season here in, the, in a couple of months in November. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your election cybersecurity initiative at USC, and then we'll dive into current events. Great. Well, this actually began amazingly, to, to, to amazing to think, it's five years ago. Okay. In 2015, we had a series of initiatives on mobile phones and public service. And one of the people who came to some of our planning meetings was Vince Cerf, who uh, was one of the co-inventors of the internet back in the 1960s. Sure. And he asked the question, why are we talking about mobile phones? And I said, well, that's the purpose of this series of meetings. And he said, well, you know, you can buy a coffee maker now with an IP address. So don't you really want to talk about the security of everything connected to the internet? And sure. everyone around the table started to nod. Sounds like a good idea. And he said, okay, no more mobile phones. Now it's uh, the internet of things. And that was 2015. By the end of that year, I had met with Mike McCall, who was then chair of House Homeland Security, sure. with uh, Omar Smith, chair of House uh, Science, Technology, and Space, uh, Tim McCain, uh, Tim Kaine, others. And we were really welcomed by the folks on Capitol Hill because it was, remember, this is 2015, this right. before the 2016 election. Because, but everybody said, you know, we, we're really going to need some help in this area. And then along came the 2016 election and the DNC hack, and that got everybody's attention, Yeah, uh, front burner. And we were approached by the National Governors Association and said, look, states need a lot of help too. And guess what? The states don't have as much money as the federal government. So please sure. work with us. So we became their cybersecurity research partner. And we did some in-state, we did some public programs at NGA meetings, and we did some in-state private off-the-record closed-door cybersecurity meetings with uh, state election officials around the country. And then last year, we had a chance meeting in a hotel hallway, which sometimes are the best meetings. Mm -hmm. um, I met two people from Google who asked me what I did, and I said, well, I'm leading this uh, 
state uh, election cybersecurity training, you do what? <laughs> I said, we do uh, election cybersecurity for state and local governments. And I'll never forget, supervisor leaned forward and said, how would you like to do all 50 states? There you go. <laughs> oh, I said, well, you're talking about a national campaign. I've seen national campaigns. You're talking about a seven-figure budget, and you don't have time to get approval for that in uh, Google. <laughs> and she said, it's in my budget already. <laughs> I said, oh, did I give you a card? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and how this started. <laughs> that's great. And, and of course, it, is, it has to be a 50-state campaign because in the United States, according to the Constitution, the, the federal government isn't the one that does elections. It's the states that do the elections. So there's a role for the federal government in setting some sorts of policy, but the actual implementation is the state governments, right? And we're facing on the order of 10,000 local elections around the country. And after they're all done in November, we add up the numbers and see who's won presidency, House and Senate, so it's on. But we're dealing sometimes with very, very local officials within the state. And this all comes in this environment of the 2020 election campaign, where a, just earlier this month, on August 7th, there was a, a DNI report that explicitly stated the implication that China, Russia, and Iran are attempting to influence the U.S. election. China is expanding its influence efforts to shape the policy environment. Iran seeks to undermine U.S. De democratic institutions and divide the country. And then, of course, Russia's persistent objective, and this is a quote, is to weaken the United States and diminish our global role. Using a range of efforts, including internet trolls and other proxies, Russia continues to spread disinformation in the U.S. that is designed to undermine confidence, unquote. We know that the Russians were involved and they, they were involved in the hacks. They were involved in disseminating it through WikiLeaks back in 2016, involved in quite a long, long litany of Facebook and other social media uh, disinformation. We expect that this is happening again. And what can people do and what are you all doing to be aware of this and to try and prevent, prevent you know, this influence operation? Well, it is happening. And as you correctly quoted, we now are seeing China and Iran become much more active mm. than in the past. And in fact, uh, China and Iran attempted in, I think it was uh, July, they hacked, attempted to hack into both the Biden and Trump camp, not successful. But meanwhile, what China and Iran are doing is they're watching Russia. If Russia does something, you'll see China and Iran pick it up. Interesting. So, so they kind of saw the success that the Russians had in 2016 and said, hey, why not us? Absolutely. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Okay. We had a briefing from David Sanger, who covers intelligence for the New York Times. Sure. He said, to, as you know, the title of his book is The Perfect Weapon, because it's so cheap and easy and effective. He said, everybody thinks Russia, 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 China, Russia, North Korea, Russia, Iran, Russia. So there are 30, three zero countries hacking into the United States. Wow. Wow. 30 countries. Wow. I said, give me an example. What's country number 30? And he said, would you believe Bangladesh? <laughs> I said, Bangladesh? Why? Oh, and he said, because it's cheap and easy. Hire a couple yeah. of guys, they'll do it for you. I said, but what do they want? Are they trying to hack into a candidate? He said, well, in the case of Bangladesh and a couple of other countries, they just want to see what their diasporas are doing in the United States and in other sure. democracies. Sure. Fascinating. Amazing. Amazing. Just because you can, let's try and see yeah. what we can do. 
So what is, when we talk about election security, what are the specific threats? There's disinformation, and then there's the actual security of the election itself, the votes and the counting of the votes and, and that sort of stuff. Do we worry about that as a cybersecurity issue? Yes, all of the above. And Homeland Security has a wonderful phrase they use. What is the return on investment for Russia and other bad actors? And trying to change the election result, it's because the United States is so decentralized. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty hard to do. Uh, you invest a lot of resources and you may or may not be successful. Yeah. The bigger return on investment is the other things you mentioned, disinformation, yeah trying to discredit the election itself, trying to reduce faith in democracy. Yeah. And Russia is doing this everywhere, not just every, democracies all over the world. And you may have seen that Cyber Command has actually just last week sent out, maybe they're standing up this week, sent out people to other democracies to look at their election systems because we have indications that Russia may attempt to stage attacks on the American election using and disguised as the election systems of France, Ukraine, mm. Indonesia. Mm. This is a, a new tactic that, that now we have to prepare for. But uh, in terms of who's at, at, at risk, the threat front is so broad now that, again, to quote somebody at Homeland Security, that we're thinking of reviving the old Smokey the Bear campaign in September. Instead of, you know, only you can prevent forest fires, it'll be only you can prevent cyber attacks because they're going into not just campaign officials and election officials, but their relatives, their children's computers. Mm -hmm. They can get into their kids' computers. They can go through the home network and try to get into their parents. And the person who really tipped us to this great example was uh, when we were doing our North Dakota workshop. The governor of North Dakota said that a 200-person school district had been attacked by Russia. <laughs> uh, why do they want why? a yeah. small school district? And he said, they're trying to get into the kids' phones. Through the kids' phones, they can get into their parents' home network. And who are their parents? Some of them are running elections. Some of them may be in campaigns. And guess what? Some of them are also running Minuteman missile bases. Sure, sure. So these, these are kind of the ultimate bank shots here. Yes. But that gets down to it that the weak points of this is kind of your, your general cyber hygiene, right? This is about yep. passwords. This is about don't click on the links. This is about don't go into some dodgy website or something like that. You still need to have that bad cyber hygiene to be able to break into somebody's system, right? This isn't, you, you can't just beat down the door. You have to go have somebody unlock it for you. Absolutely. And we thought that was too elementary that we wouldn't need to cover that. And when we were when we were talking with people who run presidential campaigns, state and local campaigns, state and local election workers, they all said, no, begin with basic cybersecurity because you'd be amazed who is not practicing it. Right. And sure enough, in our, in our workshops, and you know, the workshops are public, uh, we see comments in Zoom. You know, the people will send text messages saying, oh, my goodness, I better do that right away. <laughs> Because uh, the bad actors are looking for the weak points, and right. and you know if they find one, they'll try to exploit it. You and and of course, everybody hates passwords. Everybody hates having ten different passwords and having to change it all the time and everything like that. So so of course that's weak points. But I have a friend who works in the Pentagon, and he said some of the computers there they've literally like glued shut the USB ports 
so that people can't stick in the thumb drives that always have something on it that you could pick up anywhere at any conference and, and somebody may have put on it some you know, Chinese or Russian hacker or something and, and then boom, access to your system right there. Absolutely, we talk about it. In fact, uh, free drives that you may pick up at a conference or that you may get from a, a vendor and you never really know what's quite on that. Uh, you know, <laughs> so don't, don't plug it in. Uh, and the same thing with free software. Oh, here's a free version of a word. Well, right. you know, who's, who's selling you that or giving it to you? Amazing. You may pay for it later. And of yeah. course, organ, organized crime in the United States has actually paved the way in a lot of these areas with ransomware, uh, which is uh, quite similar. Yeah. Let me ask you, what is the innovations? You know, the, we've talked so much about 2016 and, and that happened, but here we are four years later. And of course, the now we see that the Chinese and the Iranians and others are trying to replicate what the Russians have done. But in many ways, the Russians still are at the state of the art here, right? What, what are the new tactics? What are the new innovations that, that we're seeing or we should expect to see coming from the Russians? Here are a couple of examples uh, that are new this year. One is something which uh, at least government officials here call it franchising, where in 2016, you had uh, you could trace bots and uh, uh, and other cyber attacks back to St. Petersburg, Russia, or to a Russian agency. Well, now what the Russians are doing is they're getting Americans to post Russian propaganda uh, mm. unwittingly, you know, 99% of the cases. And in some cases, they're even paying a little bit of money to somebody. They, they may not know it's Russia that's paying them. It may be, they may think it's some you know, tech company they never heard of. And as soon as Russia sees that posted by an American, then they amplify it. Now, that creates a couple of new problems because now the message isn't coming from outside the United States. So it's not cyber command. It's, now it's the FBI that has to worry about it. So it's huh. a different legal structure, raises some First Amendment questions. It's Americans posting you know, a message. That was something which uh, started to happen, I guess, about two, three months ago, as far as we know. Huh. Um, we also are seeing some very smart, ways of diabolically disrupting campaigns. And we've heard this from people who are uh, running campaigns, like the, the head of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee in one of our workshops, he said, we tell everybody before you announce, you'd better have your cybersecurity in place because the minute you announce, if not a few minutes earlier, you're gonna start getting attacked and you'll be attacked often and in different ways. And one new way that we heard about this year is most major political campaigns run paid advertising. And especially mm -hmm. now that we're not working in secure offices, most of us, people are wiring those payments from their home networks. Sure. So the Russians have figured out if they can disrupt the payment going to that television station or to that ad agency, then that campaign is all fusion for a while. And so uh, what we heard was that on Fridays, when campaigns are paying for their weekend television spots, that's when the disruption occurs. No kidding. And do they steal the money or do they just, go, uh, it just nobody knows? It, somewhere. It, it, it may be directed to some account where somebody's uh, cleaning it out or it, it may just be to disrupt the campaign. So it, it's to that extent that they are, that they're trying to just cause havoc and disruption within campaigns and, and trying to upset sort of these sorts of things. And wow. the thing that we, we couldn't have anticipated before March is that many states are now, have now changed when, where, and how you vote. Yes. And so the opportunity there for disruption 
is extraordinary. Uh, in fact, uh, I shouldn't tell which state it was, but they, we were actually doing a workshop right after a state legislature was changing the primary election date. And the Secretary of State of that state and the head of the National Guard were on the phone with us for over a half hour saying, okay, how do we get this out in a secure fashion? How can we get this out in a way that it can't be altered? How can we get this out in a way that can't be uh, attacked with disinformation? And so this, this, this is something which is a great concern. And of course, now with vote by mail, there are all kinds of other ways of trying to discredit what's going on um, and not just from foreign adversaries, but from some domestic actors. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, vote by mail is has become one of the big things here uh, in the United States of how do you, how do you make sure that this is secure? It, it's been done for years in, in absentee voting and in certain states have been 100% vote by mail, but to scale it up is, is going to be a challenge. Yeah, we were approached actually in July of last year, so what, 13, years, 13 months ago, by uh, Democratic uh, election officials in a state, and they were anticipating an increase they weren't one of the 100% vote-by-mail states. They were anticipating an, an increase in vote-by-mail, nothing like what we've seen now. But, right. And they had concerns. They said, can you help us work through this? Because we're wondering, is the Postal Service database up-to-date and reliable? If we mail out ballots to our list of eligible voters and somebody has moved, will the Postal Service forward that ballot to that now ineligible voter right. in another state or another jurisdiction? Is there enough time? How much time do we need to allow for delivery of ballots to, to voters? How much time do we need to allow for the ballots to come in? How reliable is the Postal Service going to be in returning ballots? All these things were anticipated back in July of last year, but no one anticipated the extent to which we would have surge in vote by mail. Even such little things that you don't think about, the number of entities that print ballots in the United States, you can count them on the fingers of your hand. No kidding. So are they prepared to scale up? And we think they are, but if there's some last minute crunch, some of the secretaries of state are a little worried that they might not be able to keep up. And then what do you do? Amazing. And then when it comes to election day, say we're, we're coming up to election day, that, that is probably the time for the, the most mischief and the most sort of, that's the time of maximum leverage, right? For, for adversaries. What are you hearing in your workshops and, and what are you all telling folks to expect that weekend before? You know, I, I've, I've worked elections, knocking doors and all that sort of stuff. And it's those, those four or five days before Tuesday, that weekend before, everybody's crazy. Every election, every campaign is crazy and nobody's sleeping. Everybody's eating too much pizza. So they're, they're all frazzled and then add this sort of stuff on top. The news won't know what to do, how to react. What are people anticipating what should they be anticipating come that weekend and then that Tuesday? Three things. One is, as you point out, that weekend before the election, certainly the seven days before the election, mm -hmm. a lot of people are expecting something, something new coming from uh, the, the bad actors. We don't quite know what it is. And there's some another reason that people from Cyber Command and elsewhere are going out to other democracies is to do some forensics on how were they attacked? Can we learn some lessons from the French, from the Ukrainians, from Indonesia, from India? How, can we learn some lessons about how those attacks were structured and then try to predict at least the outlines of what we might have? Second, and so that's one thing for election yeah. workers and campaign workers. The other thing is, as you point out, 
and we've been making a point of this, journalists have to be prepared because right. they need to know that they are going to be called upon to report perhaps in different ways and under a lot of time pressure what's happening in those final days. That's okay. That's one bucket. Second bucket is election night. It's probable, unless there's a, a huge landslide one way or the other, it's, it's, it's probable, almost, almost certain, we won't know who won because of uh, the slow pace of counting, uh, particularly paper ballots. Yeah. And because of, according to the uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll, and there are others that are similar, but I remember these numbers quite vividly, of those who intend to vote for Biden, 47% said they intend to vote by mail. Of those who intend to vote for Trump, 11% said they intend to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. Which means that on election night, the Trump votes are going to be counted for faster. Right. So 10, 11, 12 o'clock on Tuesday night, November 3rd, it's going to look really, really good for Trump. And so we keep telling journalists, you have to keep framing this as we don't know yet, because there are an awful lot of votes still to come in. And that's something new. And then in the days after the election, that's when we expect another wave of disinformation attacks, regardless of who's winning trying to discredit the result and trying to discredit democracy. Yeah. And as you say, uh, democracy is under attack here. The, the very center of democracy is our elections and our election system. And discrediting that is at, at our heart. This is all, all quite disturbing. Uh, what, what should people be doing to, to plan for that? Our listeners, whether it's policymakers or the general public or news media, what should people do? Well, everybody should be double checking just to make certain that their networks are cyber secure, especially if you're working from home, mm -hmm. because that is a inherently less secure location. And so I know a lot of people who are, are listening to this probably have two devices, one personal phone and one business phone. Sure. An awful lot of people don't uh, because they didn't anticipate this situation. So try to lock down personal and uh, work networks. The other thing is that just be aware that in this environment, we're going to be almost certainly exposed to some new forms of disinformation and lots of it. We have a, a couple of slogans. Well, first, our, our overall slogan is, uh, and this comes out of a meeting with a couple of people who've run presidential campaigns, Mike Murphy, who ran Jeb Bush's campaign in 2016, sure. yeah. and, uh, and Bob Shrum, who ran the Kerry campaign in 04, and both of them run other campaigns. And I said, well, you know, we're running a 50-state campaign, uh, uh, but without a candidate, at least you guys had a candidate. And Bob leaned forward, he said, Adam, you're wrong. I said, no, no, we don't have a candidate. We're bipartisan. He said, your candidate is democracy. I said, whoa, I'm going to steal that line <laughs> with credit. So that's been our slogan since November. Our candidate is democracy because that's who we want to see win. Yeah. We have a lot of other little slogans that we like to drop in. Think before you click. Yeah. Think before you repeat something from social media. Yes, if it comes from the New York Times, it's pretty reliable. Most of the stuff that you see on social media, it, uh, and, and there's a distinction between disinformation, deliberately spreading false information and misinformation, just looking at something like, oh, that's fun or oh, yeah. that's disturbing and hitting, you know, yeah. to spread Fair. it. So take one or two seconds just to think, where did that come from? Is that real? Because the bad information, you know, I'm sure you know, everybody's seen this, it travels a lot faster sometimes than the good stuff trying to correct it. Yeah. What was the, the Winston Churchill quote is, you know, a lie will get halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's, it's very true. And, and it's, especially in social media, it's just so easy to share. 
something that that fits your pre-existing storyline of of how things are going to go just click the share and then off you go and and nobody nobody even has to has to think about it talk about low cost well to that yeah. wonderful churchill quote the last thing we cover on our workshop was uh, basically getting your shoes on <laughs> that <laughs> you you can assume with a high likelihood a high probability that if you were in a campaign, if you're a state local election worker, that you're probably going to be involved with at least a disinformation attack, if not uh, something more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And before the bad thing happens, you have to prepare for it. Right. Uh, and so that's the last part of our, our, our workshop, which is, okay, uh, this is what in, corporate, in the corporate world would be called crisis communication. Right. Now, if, you're, if you're in the oil business, you know that an oil rig is probably going to have an accident. In fact, one of our presenters is the recently retired head of, of PR for uh, Union Pacific Railroad. Hmm. And he said, there are railroad accidents every day. So we have a 10-part plan that we just take down every time one of these things happens. And uh, so, that's, so we've actually present his 10-part plan. <laughs> I like it. Just get, get it out there, get it rolling. And you've yep. got to be quick about it, but you yep. also got to be accurate. Yep. Well, Adam, this is all really important stuff. Where can people go to learn more about the USC Election Cybersecurity Initiative? All of our resources, public resources, publicly available resources, are on our website, which is www, and you do need the www, cybersecurity.usc.edu. Okay. Everything's there. And in fact, if anyone wants to attend one of our workshops, we're doing Texas and, Ar uh, Texas and Alaska next week. We finish up October 6th with state number 50, Hawaii. Wow. But if anyone wants to attend one of our workshops, the schedule is there and can sign up. Great. Well, thank you. And, and maybe I'll try and sign up. We'll, we'll encourage everybody to do that. Electionsecurity.usc.edu with the WWW. That's, That's great. And we'll keep that on, on our website, on the show notes page. You know, we, we do like to finish up here with talking about the future. What, it, what is the headlines of the future that we have to have to look at? Is this something that we're going to have to be dealing with forever? Is this the way elections are going to be from now on? Are, are, this, is there this, actions that we have this to is, this is the, This is the new normal. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic will recede, <laughs> we all hope. Right. But, but in terms of cybersecurity, this is the new normal. And in fact, I was talking to somebody in Homeland Security, and I mentioned David Sanger's uh, number of 30 countries. And he said, mm, no. I said, really? It's gone down? He said, no, it's gone up. up so yeah. It's cheap, it's easy, and um, until there's some defense that's hard for us to imagine right now, uh, I don't know, maybe with quantum computing, <laughs> this, is, this is going to be the way elections are going to be held for a while. It's always going to be an arms race between those yes. who want to disrupt versus those who want to protect, right? Yep. So, so you, you, you try and protect, and then the, the people racing against it try and uh, overcome those new defenses. Yep, Russia has an R&D budget just to disrupt things. Amazing. Well, thank you, Adam. This was a great conversation. And go to our show notes page to, to learn more and go to your website. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.